Solomon, if you're new, most likely wrote Ecclesiastes, that's what I believe. And here's how to look at Solomon if you're new to this study. He is like a backslidden preacher's kid who leaves the church and begins to look at everything he'd been taught in church or youth group and deconstruct it. Like really did they know what they were talking about? So that's what he does. So he's like, did Ozzy Osbourne really bite the head off a bat? I'm going to one of his concerts. I'm gonna find out, right? Is partying really all that big of a bummer? Do you end up every time in the back of a chariot with a new tattoo missing your wallet? Is that gonna happen to me? I'm gonna try it out. So that's what he does. He starts to just deconstruct life to see if the big things that we're told will bring life actually do. And he does it apart from God. Right? I'm gonna leave God out of the equation. It's the phrase under the sun. I'm gonna evaluate life as if there is no God. And he does it through money, power, accomplishment, even morality, friendships, right? Every level you could imagine, he deconstructs life to see, will this make me happy? And he does it at a level, you guys already know this, that's much bigger than we can. Because culturally he could, and financially he could, right? So we can think, hey, pleasure, if I could just have more pleasure, life would be awesome. So Solomon's like, really? I had a thousand women. Really, right? He made Hugh Hefner look like a rookie. Like six Playboy bunnies. I married six gals last weekend, bro. You ain't got nothing on me, right? Accomplishment, building. He'd look at Trump Tower and say, that's cute. The stuff Solomon built 3,000 years ago still exists, I've been there. I've touched the stones that were quarried during his time. It's unbelievable, right? So it's big. At the end of each one of his things, whatever it was, money, power, pleasure, accomplishment, morality, friendships, at the end of each one of those, what does he say? Vanity of vanities. And the word vanity, I think, actually means enigma. It's an enigma. I sought this thing. I thought it would do it, and it didn't. It left me dry. It's like drinking salt water. It just left me drier and drier and drier. Right? So that's Solomon chapters one through six. In chapter seven, where we're at today, he turns a corner. And I can almost see a space of time being put between these two, right? 10 years later, 20 years later, he picks this thing back up. And now, instead of being the rebel deconstructor, tear everything apart, he now stands back based on his life experience, and he becomes like a professor. He becomes almost like a mentor, an advisor, a counselor. That's what he becomes. He starts to like, okay, let's look at this. It would be like this. If you had a really wise grandpa and he invites you over one morning, 5.30 a.m., be there. He's that grandpa. So you knock on his door, you come in, he lets you in. He says, here, take a seat on my couch still covered in plastic because he's protecting it. So you sit down on his plastic couch. He goes to get you something to drink. It's black tea, black coffee, no sugar, no cream, because we're tough here. He hands you it. And then he just begins to say, listen, son, listen, daughter, here's what I've learned. And he imparts wisdom. So that's where we're at right now. So what I'm gonna do now is I'm gonna read some of these verses to see what Solomon as professor, advisor, grandpa has to say first off, because it's kind of interesting. So let's go, chapter seven, verse one. 
a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fool is in the house of myrrh. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than those than these? <laughs> for it is, not for the, it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Solomon, no longer rebel, deconstructor. Now he's advisor, he's pastor, he's builder. And he invites you in. And the very first thing he says is this, have a good name, son. Have a good name, daughter. Have a good name. He doesn't say, hey, let me tell you how to succeed in life. Hey, did you get your education, your PhD? Hey, here's how you DIY life. Son, daughter, grandson, granddaughter. He doesn't say that. He says, number one, do you have a good name? How's your name? And he compares it to precious ointment. We've lost that today. But 3,000 years ago, if you had investments, part of your investment would be into ointment. It was a way that you kept money. So uh, women, when they got married, sometimes their dowry would be simply ointment. That's what it would be because it was that valuable. Very often, it'd be worth a year's salary. So today, it'd be like this. A good name is more precious than a brand new Lamborghini, which is even hard for me to say because I'm like, are you sure? I like Lamborghinis, <laughs> Right? good name. We are two months into 2019. How's your name? How's your name just this year? How's it going? What are you spending your time on? Right? Because I don't think it matters if you're spending all your time waxing your car to have this beautiful car so you can Instagram next to it or going to, to the gym to have big guns or whatever you're trying to get. Or if you're eating right, man, kale with quinoa soaked in coconut oil or whatever the fat is today, mushroom coffee. I don't care if you're whitening your teeth or whatever you're doing. 
It doesn't matter if you've done all that stuff. Every time that your name is mentioned, if people roll their eyes and say, oh, that fool. Doesn't matter, right? Who cares? That's what Solomon is saying. How's your name? Do people roll your eye, their eyes every time your name is mentioned? If there's a position open, an important position, a, a position that's above you, or maybe in a church, if your name is mentioned, are people like, oh, no, 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 not him, not her. Too dangerous, too much collateral, too much baggage. That's what Solomon is asking. How's your name? We're all given a name when we're born, but then we earn a name throughout life. And at some point, end of verse two says this, there's a day of death. On the day of death, whatever name you have earned is chiseled into stone and you cannot change it. If your name was fossilized today, would you be happy? Would you say, yeah, I'm proud of that name. That's what Solomon is saying. But here's what I love about Solomon now. Before he just poked holes in everything. Just poke, deconstruct, tear it all apart and just leave, just ruin in his wake. Now, as advisor, he starts saying, let me give you some wisdom on how to get a good name. And there's a ton in these 13 verses. I just picked four that I liked. And we're gonna do these four. If you want a good name, Solomon would say, consider these things. Keep these as part of your daily habit. Consider these things, okay? So number one is just reading on. Verse two, it's better, son, daughter, listen to me, grandson, granddaughter, listen to me. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Number one, you want a good name? Be addicted to death. Be addicted to death. I don't think there's a more important couple of verses in the Bible for our culture today. We are obsessed with youth, are we not? It's constant youth, constant this. All kinds of procedures. Take this pill, do this exercise, have Botox, have plastic surgery, wear these clothes. All these things will make you look younger because we are obsessed with staying young. We are constantly seeking the fountain of youth. Right? We don't even want old people around us anymore. Right? We warehouse them somewhere else because it reminds us, yeah, we're gonna die. So we just put them away. In previous worlds, cultures, most houses had three or four generations in them. It's why the Bible talks about to the fourth generation. All four generations would be in the same house. The house that you were born in would very often be the same place you died in. And people were associated with it. They were around it. They actually liked old people. It wasn't go to the aquarium and visit them. It was, I want them around because they have wisdom and they can help me and I'm gonna listen to them. But not anymore. We don't like death. Most people lived on farms for most of human existence. And if you wanted to eat food that evening, guess what you had to do very often in a farm? You killed something. Death was always there. Just death was part of it. Go get the chicken, chop his head off. We're eating chicken tonight. That's just part of it. Now we don't like that. I want my meat in a cellophane white package, all covered up nicely with a little sponge underneath it because I don't even want to see the blood. That's what I want. I want to get my meat from Lake Alberts. That's where I get my meat. Because we don't want death. We don't like it. We're obsessed with youth and longevity and life and living. You ever been to a church on the, west, on the East Coast that's old? 
If you have, I've been to them. You will walk through the gates of a church and then the first thing you walk through is guess what? A graveyard. Like you are walking through just markers that's telling you death's coming. It's stalking you. Very often you'd walk into those churches and there'd be a fresh mound of dirt from that last Saturday when they had a service. As a reminder, death is stalking you. All right, we have a new building. I have great ideas about when you walk in that place, <laughs> no, casket or a coffin or grim reaper just waiting. It's healthy. That's what Solomon is saying. Be addicted to death, right? It's coming for you and it's coming for me. Right? So Matt, what do you want us to do? Do you want to like have me randomly show up at a funeral? I don't even know the dude. I mean, that seems really strange. Did you know John? No, I didn't. Why are you here? My pastor told me to come. <laughs> Get out of here, right? No, but I think there are ways that we can calibrate ourselves in such a way that we're reminded death's coming. We're reminded of it. So I think everyone should have one time a year, that's it, where you go to a graveyard. You just go. And you walk around and here's the challenge. Find somebody there that's your age. Because every day in the United States of America, someone my age dies. Every day. 47-year-olds die all the time. And you go and you sit and you say, how would I like it if my name was chiseled in stone today? Is there stuff left undone? Are there people that are in my wake that have been hurt horribly by me? Do I have a good name? And you listen and journal and write and it's good because we got to remember death. We're changing so fast. Like weddings, did you know that weddings, like the, the classic wedding vow, for better, for worse, for rich, for poor. You know what concludes now? As long as we both shall live. That's happy. 50 years ago, you know how it ended? Until death separates us. We don't say that anymore in weddings. I do. I still use that one. In fact, I actually better explain it. I say, until death's steel claw grabs a hold of your throat and squeezes the life out of you, you'll be faithful to that woman. Right? I don't do very many weddings anymore. Just, no, not him. <laughs> He's too depressing. It's like that. We just so far away from it. Go to a graveyard every once in a while. Just walk through it. Find someone your age. Number two, I think we have to have our radars up. We are today bombarded every day as Americans with 5,000 ads. And these ads are telling you what life is. This is life. If you could do this, if you could have that, this is life. So it's just this constant bombardment of advertisements. And if you don't have an antidote to that, man, you'll be led astray. So what's the antidote? I think the antidote to advertisements is obituaries. I'm dead serious. <laughs> Not as funny as the first time. <laughs> Much funnier in the 9 a.m. <laughs> Have you ever compared them? Because ads, they tell you this, like life is these things. Life is to have super white teeth. 
Life is to have great hair. Life is to eat good food. Life is to drive an awesome car. Life is to have great sex and we have all these pills for you now. Life is to have a great body, right? They tell you, this is life. And you're bombarded by it all the time. You ever heard an obituary like that? Oh, she had great teeth. Oh, man. Oh, she had a great body. She's got so much Botox in her, she will be wrinkle-free for a thousand years. I haven't heard it yet. I did my wife's grandma's memorial yesterday. We had a eulogy. There was none of that in it. There's a whole different list of things. I think sometimes you gotta combat advertisements by just grabbing the paper and saying, I'm just reading the obituaries today and see what people say. This is why I remember him. This is why I remember her. This is what matters. It's brilliant. And then thirdly, I think that you need to find somebody that's older than you. I just use 20 years. And you look at that person that's 20 years older than you and ask yourself, why do I admire them? What do they have? What do they do that I like in them? So for me, it's a 67-year-old guy. When I look at a 67-year-old man, what am I saying? Hey, what do I admire? Because he's a little closer to death than I am, right? And I wanna know, why is it that I look up to him? I've never looked at a 67-year-old man and been like, Bro, look at the abs on that dude. Whew. Have you? If you have, repent. Because it's weird. But I'll tell you what, fortitude, faithfulness, compassion, kindness, family, community, relationships. Oh, the list goes on and on. That's why I like that guy. And if in 20 years I say, I wanna be like him, then I need to say, what am I doing today? I gotta live life backwards. I like him in 20 years. So how am I ordering my life today to be like him? That's what Solomon is saying. Man, be addicted to death. You want a good name? Number one, be addicted to death. Number two, just falling right from there. Sorrow is better than laughter. Who here believes that? Sorrow is better than laughter. I'm like, what? No, it's not. And he goes on. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fool is in the house of myrrh or partying. Number two, Solomon would say, wise grandpa, If you want a good name, son, grandson, granddaughter, embrace sorrow, embrace sorrow. And he has this cryptic little phrase. He says, for by sadness of face, it's a Hebrew way of saying you're bawling your eyes out. By sadness of face, the heart is made glad. I mentioned this in the memorial yesterday. Science has done tests on your tears. The tears that you cry because of sorrow and emotion and that compared to the tears that you have because a speck of something gets in your eye. Here's what they found. The tears of sorrow are packed full of stress hormones. It's almost a way of your body releasing all that toxic stuff out of your body. It's an amazing thing. That's why after you've had a really good cry, how do you feel? I feel so good. 
That's what Solomon is saying. Right before science, he goes, listen, a good cry is healthy. It's good for your heart, right? Babies already know this. Like, I gotta cry, mom. I don't care it's 2 a.m. I get this stuff out of my body. It's destroying me. It's killing my heart and my brain. And my I just gotta cry it out. Hold on. Crying is healthy. And that's where he goes on to say, uh, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. I think in our, in our new building, we just need a house of mourning. Just go there and ball. Like there'll be a really mean guy in there that will insult you until you cry. Something like that. I just gotta get this stuff out. Insult me. It's bigger than that though. It's not just that. It's really this. Solomon is hitting on something that's huge. Life change, those moments that have been huge in you, very seldom happen when you're cracking up. Very frequently, we make huge decisions that change our trajectory when we're deeply saddened and we're sorrowful, right? The psalmist says this, Psalm 119, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. The psalmist, like most testimonies, he says this, hey man, I'm partying, having a great time. And then affliction hit me, sorrow hit me. And it was then in my sorrow that I realized, oh my goodness, I've gone astray. I'm repenting and getting back to God. How many have that in their testimony? It was a hard time that kind of brought me back to God, right? That's me. But the psalmist is saying, because it's in those moments when you have sorrow and hurt and pain that you're receptive to God's spirit. Paul puts it like this. It's 2 Corinthians 7, verses 11 down. He says this, I wrote a letter to you. It made you sad, but you know what? I'm glad because the sorrow you felt led to repentance unto salvation, zeal and eagerness. So Paul says, I know I made you sad with the harshness of my old letter, but based on what it's produced in you, man, I'm super happy. I found in my life, it's sorrow. It's hard things that lead me to repentance. It's hard things that make me evaluate my life. And if you're in a season of sorrow right now, embrace it. It's a great time to just sit and say, why do I feel this way? The psalmist did it, did he not? My soul why are you disquieted within me? What's going on inside of me that's leading me to this? Maybe I've got off the path God wants for me, Psalm 119.67. Maybe I need some repentance unto salvation, some zeal that I have not had. Why am I feeling this way? It's a moment where God can do great things in you and me. You meditate and sit. So this is what I think about, it. like laughter to me is like dessert. Who doesn't like dessert? We need dessert, need dessert, right? But sorrow is like exercise. Laughter is a gift from God that, you know, science is a little bit out on this, but they always stretch it. Uh, pretty much people are in agreement. Only humans laugh. We're the only ones that laugh. What a gift that is from God. Laugh all the time. Laugh, it's dessert, it's awesome. But exercise changes you. We need exercise too. Sorrow is like that exercise of, ah, oh, ah. Oh. So I was reading about Greg LeMond recently. He is the guy that won the Tour de France. Um, legally, I know we have another American who won it, but 
kind of debate on him. Greg LeMond, great dude, rode arguably the hardest athletic event in the world. There's people that argue that. It's not just a marathon in a day and you're done. It's day after day after day after day after day of grueling, muscle-breaking exercise. So he's being asked about this. And he was asked this question in this interview. He goes, the pain you get from exercising, you've done it for decades now. Does it get easier? Here's how he answered. It never gets easier. You just go faster. I love that quote. Listen, sorrow is never gonna get easier. That's not its goal. That's not its purpose. But so that you go faster, you get more. And so Solomon rightly says, hey, if you're in sorrow right now, sit in that house for a while. Evaluate yourself. Where do I need to change? Move me. Want a good name? Be addicted to death. Embrace sorrow. Then thirdly, verse five, the hammer. Grandson, granddaughter, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools or the praise of a fool. Number three, receive rebuke. Is there anyone in here that loves to be rebuked? Man, I do not like it. Is there anyone in here that likes to rebuke people? If that's you, don't do it. Probably not your gift. Just kidding, kind of. Be careful. Be super careful. I personally, I don't like either of them. I don't like to be rebuked. And if I need to like talk with somebody about a very difficult thing, man, I, I am really patient on it. I'm just like, oh, okay, how do I do this well? How do I phrase this well? Because I know this, when you get rebuked or you rebuke people, guess what happens? You go through this little pattern, right? I think there are steps to it. So if someone comes up to you and says, hey, or come to me, Matt, you know, I've seen something in your life that's really bothering me. And I want to talk to you about it. I've noticed response number one is this, retaliation. Oh, you've seen something in my life that bothers you and you want to talk to me. Oh, great. Because I've seen something in your life that I want to talk to you, right? It's immediately you want to retaliate. Then number two, it's rejection. It's now you're just a moron. You find deficiencies in their character to then say, well, then they can't be right. But as Christians, hopefully what happens next to you is remorse. <sighs> okay, maybe they're right. And then repentance, God changed me. But that's a hard process. I don't like it. But Solomon says this, listen, grandson, granddaughter, if you want a good name, receive rebukes. Now, I think there's a really good way to do them. And the example I'll give is my wife, because, and I gave this five years ago, right after it happened, but it was just brilliant. Um, we had a very busy season in our life. Uh, had foster kids for about a year, then they went to a grandparent. So finally we had like back down to uh, not feeling like I come home to a refugee camp every night. So it's like, oh, okay, let's go. We went to the coast and I just wanted my family. You know, you subtract five years from all my kids. They're a little bit younger. 
total fun, sandcastles, boogie boarding, whatever. Good food, so I'm just ready for that. Well, we get over there and we, we get parked and we're all ready. And then these other families that we know show up with us. And I'm like, man. And I wasn't mean. I wasn't like, get away from me. Why are you here? I didn't do any of that. But I wasn't like hospitable and I, I was kind of just neutral about it. And nobody would have noticed, right? Nobody noticed, except for one person, my wife. So that evening... Everyone's gone, put the kids down. She described me, she said, honey, you weren't your best today. There's so much more to you. You're so much deeper than that. You're so much better than that. And that's why I love you so much. Good night. (laughs) Guess what that did to me? (sighs) Yeah, there is more to me, that's right. It called something, that very kind rebuke called something up in me. And I still remember it to this day because it was done so graciously and so kindly and so beautifully. It didn't belittle me. She didn't do it in front of the kids, in front of a bunch of people. She's not like, listen, stop being a moron, Matt. She didn't do that. It was kind. It was beautiful. And I listened to it. And hopefully I grew and I'm better from it. Can you receive rebukes? When someone rebukes you, what do you do? Do you immediately put up the, huh? Or you listen? Now, it doesn't mean everyone's right. I try to listen as well as I can, and then I, I don't answer. I just go home and process. And if I feel like they might be right, I'll get counsel then from other people I trust. Hey, someone told me this about myself. What do you think? Is that true? And if people keep confirming it, then I gotta be like, I guess that is me. Can you receive rebukes? Now, if you have somebody that raised their hand and said, I can rebuke well, man, listen to them. It's the best asset you have in the world. We do all this crazy stuff. I'll tell you, the best self-help you can ever have is the community that God has put around you right now. If you're willing to let them, if you're willing to receive from them, it's the best help you can ever get to become a person with a good name. Can you receive a rebuke? I hope you can. So want a good name? Addicted to death. Number two, embrace sorrow. Number three, receive a rebuke. Lastly, verse eight, skipping forward. There's a bunch in here. Read it, think it through on your own. Anger's a good one, obviously, but I'll stick with verse eight. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Number four, be faithful. Be faithful. Want a good name? Grandpa Solomon would say, be somebody that does what you say, that finishes things you start. Be that kind of person. But it's so much easier to begin something than it is to finish it, right? 100%. Husbands, how many half-finished projects do you have in your garage? I have a formula. How old you are, multiplied by how long you've lived in that house, multiplied by how many years you've been married. That will give you the number of half-finished projects. Just call Liska, auction it off. Cut your losses. Ladies, you don't get out of it. You've got the craft drawer or whatever it is. Just, it won't even shut anymore, full of stuff, right? It's easy to start something. 
hard to finish it, right? The beginning of a remodel is awesome, right? Sledgehammers and skill saws, well, Grant's past, chainsaws and dynamite, like awesome. But then, oh no, how are we gonna put this back together? Right? You call somebody else. It's easy to begin, it's hard to finish. When someone mentions your name, what do they think? When they say, oh, this guy promised he would do that, are they confident? Are they saying his word, her word is her bond? Or are they like, oh no, don't trust them. You better check up on that. Oh no, what is it? I hope when my name is mentioned and I say I'm going to do something, I hope people say, oh, he'll get it done. He'll get it done. The Bible says this, 1 Corinthians 4, 2. It's required of leaders to be found faithful. Not recommended, not a good idea. It is a requirement of godly leaders to be found faithful. If you say you're going to do that, even to your own hurt, you keep your word. That's what it's saying. Be faithful. Solomon, brilliantly, want a good name, son, daughter, grandson, granddaughter? Embrace death. Keep it for you. Live life backwards. Be addicted to death. Embrace sorrow. Let sorrow have its good work in you. Receive rebukes and be faithful. Don't quit. I wonder to myself how many things I've given up on in life that maybe I should have had a little bit more tenacity, a little bit more faithfulness in that would, be, would radically change my life if I just stuck them through. I wonder how many things. I was just reading about J.K. Rowling, the Harry Potter author, who's worth whatever, $100 billion, whatever she's worth, a lot of money. Did you know this? She was rejected dozens and dozens and dozens of times for her first Harry Potter book. She went through all the big, big, big ones. And each time she'd get the book back, she'd tweak it a little bit and she'd try it again. Tweak it a little bit, try again. Never gave up. Finally, she found this tiny, like no unknown publisher in London that said, yeah, we'll do a run of like a thousand, whatever. It's a tiny little run. The rest is history because she was faithful. I'm not giving up. I'm going to finish this thing. I'm going to see it through. All right? But Solomon is Solomon. And I read all the way to verse 13 because Solomon puts his Ecclesiastes twist on this. Look really quick at verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? So Solomon now, pastor, professor, grandpa hat, wisdom, advice. But at the end of this long kind of, here's how you get a good name. At the very end of it, he goes, yeah, good luck with that. Because what's crooked in you, what's broken in you, good luck with that. Who can straighten that out? That's what he's doing. The angst we feel, the desire we feel, the want we feel, yeah, I want to do all this stuff. But in reality, are you going to do it? Which is most of us. We're two months in to this new year. Who here would say I've kept all of my new year's resolutions? And you had to have made one to raise your hand. Yeah, you can't be like, I make none of them and I keep them all, man. Batting a thousand, bro. Why? Because we have these desires to do things and, and I wanna be faithful and I want to have a good name and I want this, but then to actually 
straighten out what's crooked in us, whew, that's a whole different thing. It's Solomon just being Ecclesiastes. Here's what you should do, but you can't, ha ha, right? And most of us, I just call it the human condition. Solomon's constantly in Ecclesiastes, putting his finger on the human condition. That we're always in this, this tension, right? And, and the tension is our culture today. Like I was talking to staff um, in a meeting this Tuesday, and I said, American culture has two pillars right now. Pillar number one, be all you can be. It's the self-help machine that just, just, crunches out new everything, new diets, new fads, new whatever, to make the best of you, right? We got this just, it, billions and billions of dollars every year are spent on self-improvement. How do, I become, how do I increase my memory? Whatever it is, how do I become a different person? There's just billions of dollars into it. So be all you can be. But the other side of it is over here. And it's, you gotta be you. Be authentic. Do you see how those two are in tension? You read this great book about some guy who does this thing and you're like, I wanna be him. How do I become him? He's so awesome. Then you get rebuked for something and then what do you say? I just gotta act, that's just me. That's who I am. I gotta act authentically. Like we ping pong between these two all the time. I do it. Like I'm totally into bullet journaling now. I'm like, it is so awesome. It helps out so much. Why? Because I read a book, I really like the guy. Man, is he gonna help me or not? I don't know. But man, I'm, I'm sold right now just like it. It's a human condition. And we all feel it in our hearts that on the one hand, we know we could be something greater, but on the other hand, we also know we have this greatness in us. If only that could get out. And so we ping pong between them. It's why the psalmist in Psalm chapter eight, verse six says this, you and I humans, have been crowned with glory. The word glory there, it's the Hebrew word kavod. It literally means God's weight. It's usually only used for God. But the psalmist says, hold on, you image bearer, you created in God's image, you have been given the same kavod. So we sense that in us, like there is a glory to me And yet on the other hand, we also know, but there's a real crookedness to me. And so we ping pong, which one do we do? How do you straighten out what's been made crooked in your life and my life? Like, how do we do this? I wanna do all these things, but I know I'll walk out this building and I won't do them. Just like I haven't kept my new year's resolutions, just like I haven't done everything else. How do I do it? Well, there's this great, little verse. It's actually prophetic. It's Isaiah 42, verse 16. And you, you have, it's a long verse. I'll just read. I'll just give you the part that matters. It says this, what's crooked will be made straight. It's God speaking. What's crooked will be made straight. And then right after that, it says this, I will do it. It's one of my favorite verses because I got crookedness in me. I have these great desires to be something that I know I could be. I'm a glorious ruin. Like there's this ruinness in me, but even in the midst of rubble, I can see, man, God, you designed me for purpose and power, but I'm just crooked. I'm crooked. And so God says, Matt, what's crooked in you? I'll straighten out. 
And to me, that's the Christian walk. That we come and we read things like Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 12. And we see, I don't wanna be angry. I do wanna be faithful. I, I wanna hear rebuke. We hear all these things and we're like, yes, yes, yes. But we also know, but I'm too crooked to do it. And so the Christian walk is, we get this thirst from scripture about what is potential and, and how it could be different. And then we come to the source, to the one that can actually change us, the straightener. That's the Christian walk. And we come and we eat and we partake of him saying, Jesus, I wanna be faithful. And I know if it's just left up to me, I'm too crooked. So you changed my heart and you reshaped me into a faithful person just like you were. Jesus, I've been rejecting anyone's rebuke of me. And I wanna be humble. So humble me so that I can receive these things and be changed by the community, the body that you put around me. He's the straightener. That's the Christian walk. And we'll come back next week and we'll do it again. You know why? Because you'll leave this building and 35,000 advertisements will be telling you, this is life over here. And you must come and eat and drink of the antidote to that, or else you end up squirrely and crooked. That's a Christian walk. We get a thirst. Oh, I want that. And we come to the river of living water that can actually make it happen. That's a Christian walk. And it's a process that we walk out and we're changed little by little into his image. And that's our hope. So Jesus today, may we hear your voice. It says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Weary of trying only to fail. Weary of the, the stuff that we lay on ourselves, the trips that we lay on ourselves that destroy us. And we wanna to come to you this afternoon. We want to learn of you. We want to take your yoke because you're meek and humble. And we want those same things in our lives. So I pray this day, as we partake in your broken body and your spent blood, the life that you gave so that the crookedness in me might be made straightened. I pray that today we would meet with you in these elements. And where I need to be faithful, you'd empower me. That I'd repent of my lack and you'd be the power. Where I'm weak, you would be strong. That's the promise of the gospel. Make it a reality in our life today. We wanna have good names that's a good desire. And we know you're the power, your grace, your mercy, your life lived through us. And so I ask after we eat and drink this day in humility, receiving from you, I pray that we could go from here reflecting your majesty, your glory, your kavod a little bit better, authentically better. So help us. Feed us, empower us, and may we have good names this year. And I ask this 
In your name, amen.